0: Hi, everybody. We're back at Dorothy's Place, and I'm here with Pete, the man of the hour, uh, who has done that thing that many of you will not be amazed to hear. He has written a book, and it is about to appear next week. Right, Pete?
1: Yes, May 4th, it is coming out.
0: All right. Brace yourselves. This is very cool. Um, It's a great pleasure to talk to Pete about this, because, of course, reading his wonderful book, it's it's all these things we've been talking about. It's like some sort of deep transcription of, of the middle space that Pete and I live in all the time. Right. So,
1: yeah, I feel uh, in many ways, I feel like this interview is home court advantage for doing book <laughs> interviews, because not only is this our home podcast, but this is many of the ideas emerged out of the Solidarity Hall community.
0: Oh, that's cool. That's cool. You know, it's it's wonderful where this book came from because books come from lots of different odd events. But I wanted to maybe, if if you like this idea, tell us when you when you did the thing that kicked off the book process, which was a graduation address at law school. You probably had a couple of ideas in your head as to what this address was and what it might look like, and what were you thinking? at the time when you wrote this up and then apparently I would say carefully rehearsed it and delivered it in boffo fashion.
1: Yeah. You know, there were two things that kind of streams of rivers that came together um, to hit this idea. So the first stream was, you know, the book is very personal um, and it's about kind of, every aspect of life. But it started kind of in my heart in a kind of grappling with political questions. So I work in my daily life on many political causes. And one of my goals is civic revival. How do we get more people involved in their communities? And what I found in that work, and when I was challenged with this opportunity to give the speech, to think up like one message, like what is, it's kind of an interesting challenge. What is the foundational message? What is the Archimedean lever you will will turn if you can get one five minute message across to a lot of people? Right. And it hit me, you know, there's a part of you when you care about justice causes or civic revival, you want to talk about the concrete Mm -hmm. substance of it. You know, we need to fight climate change. We need to build solidarity in America. We need to do localism. But that, you know, that only gets across to people at a certain level. And I wanted to go deeper than that. And the thing that hit me as the like major roadblock to all of these causes that I cared about is that there is simply not enough people working on or caring about Mm. such causes. Mm -hmm. There are not enough people working on 10, 20, 30 year projects to advance causes about anything you know there are not enough people who have committed to their towns to build up their place there are not enough people who have committed to healing a community divide or building up a community or cohering an intellectual community like you have done with solidarity hall elias there are not enough people working on advancing these causes and you don't need everybody to be working on things to advance causes. You know, most of the biggest, as Ralph Nader likes to say, most of the biggest causes in history were about 1% of people. But we don't have 1% of people in the various, uh, you know, I'd say we're maybe one-tenth of the way there on many of these important causes of our time. And so I want, and then I did one step deeper on that, which was, well, what's preventing people from joining up? And I think it was this psychological aversion hmm. to committing to anything, to yep. allying or subsuming yourself in anything bigger than yourself. And that is where I made the theme of the speech be about commit to something commit to a particular thing. Um, uh, and so that was one river. I I can stop there. or I can tell you about the second river. So the second river was this mystery, which was just a personal mystery about my experience, a gripe with my higher education experience, both in undergrad and law school, which was the mystery was the elders that, um, in those institutions, when you ever had this event where older people told younger people about what to do, how Mm -hmm. to think about life, how to think about your career, how to think about where to live, the number one message, it is almost the religious motto of higher education in America, keep your options open, was the motto. Pick a job that will help keep your options open for future jobs. Go to a place that will help you keep your options open. Don't settle down. This is the time to keep your options open. And yet, when you looked at the particular embodied people that were worth looking up to, that were gaining respect, when you look at the older people that were like our heroes, they were all people who totally ignored that advice. (laughs) Um, And when you looked at, this is the part that really won it over for me. When you look at your peers, that were earning respect. Mm-hmm. They were the ones that were not keeping their options open either. It was always, you know, I, I kept hearing these sentences like, oh man, you gotta hand it to Johnny. He's really becoming a Brazilian Jiu Jitsu, uh, <laughs> you know, uh, instructor. Or you gotta hand it to, uh amy she's really gonna join the rabbin- r- rabbinate you know um oh that person's really getting married at 21 they're doing it i i gotta hand it to them that's all you know they're they're really going for it you know yeah. all these phrases of praise and what was even people we didn't like like i can't stand the guy but you gotta admit he really cares about that cause or whatever yeah. um yeah. or he's a really good father or something mm-hmm. um it's all because they made a commitment. And so that all came together in this fight against keeping your options open, this mm-hmm. call to action for commitment and this tribute to long haul heroes. That's great. That's great.
0: Yeah. So, so many themes come together and, and the idea of taking the sort of metaphor of Netflix and infinite browsing, a, a, an activity that every human being on the planet practically is familiar with and starting through that door, that that seemed to work wonderfully well, you know?
1: The, yeah, the the metaphor that's kind of at the center of the book is, yeah, as you mentioned, is this idea that you, it's late at night, you're browsing Netflix, you scroll through different titles, you read reviews, you watch trailers, then it's been 30 minutes, you never picked a movie, and um, it's time to go to sleep. And that is kind of the experience I saw with this yeah. keeping your options open. And and the, the funny thing about it, I really, I use it as a metaphor, but... It is also one of the great, practical, stupid lessons I've learned in my life. Almost every single movie or show, even if they're bad, I've almost never, like I've seen bad movies and bad shows, but I have never, I think I have a hundred percent hit rate. I have never regretted spending the last hour watching something because it just, you know, most things that get to the point of being in the Netflix choice are at least something.
0: Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. <laughs> and, um, that's and that's kind of one of my mm-hmm. messages in life. It's better to have something than remain on the browsing screen, even sure. if that something was not the perfect thing no, that's to have correct. watched or done for or sure, engaged with.
0: Sure. Before we dive a little deeper, you know, I'm, I'm sort of um, smiling, thinking about a certain category of book buyer that will be in the bookstore and will grab this because it seems to be something about self-help. Have you thought about this? You know, yes I, I actually, pete's got to have 12 rules for me being happier <laughs> wiser and slightly thinner and i can't find this doesn't seem to be what he's talking about
1: <laughs> yes this is i i've i i've now had two interviews in a row i just got done with an interview with jesuitical and i said i can reveal my ulterior motive because it's fellow catholics but i as a kind of catholic infused catholic flavored podcast now i can do right. it again right which is this appears to be a like tim ferris yeah. rise and grind yeah. um you know book that is like it is categorized literally in the official book categorization section as self-help i knew that was but right. um and um and yet I, I i feel bad for the people that want their like 10 tips yeah. for a better life because exactly. it If you read it, the ulterior thing you will discover and be surprised, maybe this will lead to the book's demise, is it's more of like a, you know, a a very humanist reflection on, you know, you don't see many self-help books where it's like, as Simone Vi says, or <laughs> as Alastair McIntyre says, we must find the goods internal to practices. No, exactly. I sometimes get made fun of by my friends who are less into these things. They're like, "What the heck are you doing with this?" Exactly.
0: Um, this is a self-help book that t- begins by telling you to get over yourself. You know, so
1: <laughs> sort of a yes, thing. it's a it's a self-escape uh, uh, blueprint. You know, but, but of course, in a larger sense, it is a self-help
0: book. If you really you know, take it seriously and so on. Yes. It, it's a kind of an anthology. This is the wonderful thing about it. You get into it uh, just for a bit and you suddenly realize this is going to be, I don't know what to compare it to exactly. It's an anthology of stories. It's an anthology of ideas. It's, it's I, you know, I'm thinking it's kind of like a miniature whole earth catalog for the millennial church, you know, in terms of all the wonderful uh, ideas and possibilities that you throw out that people have taken seriously and dug into.
1: I didn't have a word for this until recently, but I've discovered that the phrase is curatorial. Uh, (laughs) Yes. Yes, It's like, uh, I I feel that. And that's literally how. Wait one second. Wait one second. Uh, Hold up. There was just some weird noise. I'm sorry. We can edit this out Er, or hold up. Sorry about that strange noise coming from the house. Yeah, sure. <laughs> um, um Yeah, it's you know, I literally put the book together by throwing kind of scrap, it's like a scrapbooking uh, experience of, you know, oh, this is the perfect quote for that, or this is the perfect story, or this is the perfect historic moment, and then it all comes together, and then I lather on Transition prose. I'm revealing all the secrets, you know? It's not like like one of those books where it was like one idea that sprouted into a beautiful thing. It was much more, I've noticed this in a hundred different places, and by seeing it all together as a collection, it might... Get the point across to you.
0: Yeah, yeah. That's good. You know, um, there are, there's a kind of a vocabulary in the book that comes out. You're, you're redefining some words um, or, or asking us to rethink some words. I, I love the phrase depth as a superpower, right? Yes. Depth, yeah. That's depth is a little bit like um, concentration in the midst of the attention economy, right? This is a scarce commodity, it seems, in some ways.
1: Yes. Um, I. The example I use with depth as a superpower is, uh, the prime example, is expertise. Hmm. Think about expertise. It's like you spend, you know, even in some small ways, like a year, let alone like PhDs that spend 10 years, yeah. and you build up a well of knowledge in an area. And then suddenly that one year of doing that depth, just suddenly you become, it's like super heroic. It's like suddenly you can just, you know, do things a hundred times faster. You can engage with something and see very clearly what's going on. And I tell the story of my friend from my hometown who, um, he was a hockey reporter for the Washington Capitals. Hmm. And he developed a depth of knowledge about hockey on the job. To the point that he can watch a game and, you know, you watch a game and you're not a hockey expert and there's just, it's just a random chaos of things like it's kind of pretty and i kind of know generally you throw the sticks with the pucks and it goes in the goal and that's a good thing and you're trying to block or something but he can see it and he could be like okay yeah that was icing they're avoiding that i know that he needs to do good on that stat because he's in the running for this and his contra even outside of the game oh. his contract negotiation is next year but they that. just brought in a new assistant manager <clears throat> and he and he tells a story of Writing a game story in like 30 minutes as the game is finishing up hitting like writing it almost. And this is a double expertise. It's the craft of journalism and the craft of and the expertise of hockey. Mm -hmm. And then he churns out a 30 minute story and hits send and he's like, wow that's it. I I can now do that. And if you told me I have to write like a coherent, useful hockey story now, just as me, I'd be like, okay, give me like nine weeks to figure it out or something. And so, and that's for expertise, but there's a lot of other examples of that too. Yeah, no, that's
0: good. That's good. You know, one thing that comes through when you're talking about the long haul is the idea of uh, sustaining practices, being part of a community of practice, you know, where you're working on, on something over the long term. And I was thinking about ways in which I've discovered this. Sometimes um, there's been an occasion where I have run into or a friend of mine has run into someone who is at a very high altitude in a certain art or skill or craft or whatever it might be. And I'll give you a quick comic example and then I want to hear your thoughts on this. A friend of mine was a singer in the Lyric Opera Chorus in Chicago. And he told me about the night he was positioned uh rather surprisingly to him next to pavarotti oh wow and so he had never been near the guy and pavarotti came on stage and the orchestra starts up and there the chorus sings a little bit and suddenly he said pavarotti opens his mouth and he said it was like a hurricane came up it, he was at a level of the game That was so tremendous it was like a tiger woods thing right it's like this is this guy's just on a different planet just blowing air out to the back of the lyric opera hall you know that that can show you what practice means what the long-term kind of cultivation of something can mean
1: yeah you know i i that is totally What I'm trying to get across with this is that, and it's not, you know, I'm trying to get out of that very individualized, atomized, like, rise and grind, self-help spirit of this. It's not like you can be a master if you work at it. It's more this kind of human, humble aspect of it, like the beauty of this, like the beauty that, you know, I have this part in the book where I talk about one of the pleasures of browsing is chasing novelty. It's like fun to do a bunch of fun, new, exciting things. But the sweetest novelties are the novelties at the other end of a long haul. Mm -hmm. So the novelty of hitting the high note, the novelty of mastering the course, the novelty of having the expertise and being able to do something off the cuff, the novelty of knowing what it feels like to be on your 10th anniversary or your child's 10th birthday, Mm -hmm. that is the sweetest novelty. And if you keep browsing, you'll never be able to hit that. Yeah. Yeah. There's this other part of sustaining practices and my very good editor who cut out um, all the parts where I went deep <laughs> into the types of stuff we'd love on this podcast, but you know, more than a hundred people, there's not an audience of more I than a hundred sure. people. I used to have this whole long section in the book on what Alastair McIntyre talked about with practices, which is, and it, there's some remnants of it if you go searching yes. in the remaining text, yeah. which is the practice of a bunch of different people a community of people in yeah. a practice together and it this his book after virtue which mm-hmm. you know you can't really recommend the book because i i think you got to be primed to get this lesson from it cuz it's kind of very dense yeah. but what i took away from it which was a really transform like top 10 transformative thoughts of yeah, my I, life yeah i agree the
0: book had the same impact on me i agree
1: amen yes no it's like it really is the idea that, you know, baseball or chess or the being fellow Catholics in the Catholic church or being fellow Texans or Mm -hmm. beauty pageants, any of these, or uh, the idea of brunch, you know, any of these cultural institutions that have elements and substance to them, they are sustained by a community of people continuing to to maintain and steward them over time and it's almost like a constellation of meaning that each star in the constellation needs to do its part to bring it all together and if the stars kind of all disperse the con- the spirit that the constellation brought together goes away, the magic goes away. And I always say there is no Michael we talk about Michael Jordan, but what Alaster McIntyre got me thinking about was the sublimity. And you can do this by watching the Jordan doc, which is like an example of sublimity uh, and goods internal to practices or something. The sublimity of Michael Jordan is maintained by the scorekeepers, the high school basketball coaches, Mm -hmm. the referees, the halls of fame in, um, in the basketball hall of fame, the traditions of the jerseys all of that cultural elements contributed to the sublimity of us finding it incredibly beautiful that he scored the game winning shot in the finals or played his flu game in Game six and not all of that would have m- meant nothing if the practice was not sustained. Yeah. And, um, <clears throat> no one thinks about sustaining practices that much anymore and how much sublimity and beauty and, uh, goods are we losing by not sustaining them?
0: Yeah, yeah, exactly. You make a point about um, sports and being on a team and the power of that. And, And, you know, a practice is a team exercise. It's part of the social. And it's part of this larger topic we come back to all the time, which is how do we recover the social, right? This missing thing between the market and the state where there's some sort of void that we we need, we've lost cultural memory of mostly. And, and yet your book seems to be pointed at saying, this is where we need to rebuild.
1: Amen. You know, and it's, I think it's, you know, I'd love to hear your thoughts on this is to me, sometimes it's this obsession with efficiency to achieve the um, single purpose that you assume something is. Hmm. Hmm. So You assume, okay, the purpose of the soccer team is to host the game, you know, and train the the girls on the soccer team or something. And, um, and... So if you were trying to super efficient make that super efficient, you'd get rid of all the extraneous stuff and make it just about that one goal. And you can see this in a much more extreme example, like what is the purpose of a university? It's to train people for jobs. So get rid of the courses, get rid of the campus, have it online or whatever. But as, you know, us Burkeans, you know, with the good part of Burke, you know, I won't take it all, but you know, the part we like about it would say relative to the kind of hyper techno progressives um we know that all that other organic detritus is very important you know it doesn't have just one purpose and you might think you're making everything much more efficient, but you're gonna wake up 50 years from now and wonder why is my why is our community so cold? Why is our university so neutral? Why do people not have a spring in their step or a fire in their belly as they walk down the streets? And it's because of all those little decisions you made to get rid of the kind of magic of uh, of light of the social. Um, yeah. Uh, in the in the name of efficiency and all those uh, moments in the past.
0: indeed, the social also is the arena of friendship, you know, and 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 recovering uh, friendship as a kind of a social force. It, it was once true that uh, friendship was a, a, a big factor in politics, which it's not very much anymore. Um, but sort of historically, you know, there's a lot of reflection on the importance of friendship in a well-run uh, polis you know a, a well-run community and i think what you're pointing to dedication if it draws you into common practice that's where friendships are are forged you know
1: yeah i have this i found all these my fa- the aside from the curatorial kind of the the value add that i'm proud of in the book mm-hmm. is i've discovered some of these interesting patterns And one of them is that the three fears of commitment that we have correspond to the three, overcoming these three fears corresponds with three of the joys and gifts of commitment Ah. um, and dedication. And one of them is friendship. So I'd love to talk about that. So, you know, one is one of the reasons we're scared of commitment is fear of regret. Which is, if I commit to this, I will wake up 20 years from now and regret that I didn't commit to something else, another person, another place, another career. And, but if you overcome that fear, you have the freedom of purpose. You don't have what McIntyre called the freedom of ghosts. You know, I am not bound by anything. I have no substance. You have the freedom of purpose, something that frees you from yourself. Mm -hmm. On the fear of missing out is the second most kind of well-known fear of commitment, I'm happy with what I committed to, but it comes with responsibilities that are sometimes not fun. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm happy I joined this book club, but I have to show up on Wednesday at seven on a week I don't want to, or a a week that there's a cool thing happening somewhere else. And, um, but when you overcome the fear of missing out, you, um, and stick with your commitment, you have the joy of depth. And that's my whole thing about depth as a superpower. And here comes the third one that kind of speaks to what you said. This is a surprising one that I think people don't think about enough, but I think is really true, especially in my generation. The fear of association. Hmm. We fear the chaos that a commitment will bring to our identity, to our reputation, to our sense of control. If I join a church or a synagogue or a religion, um, that will affect my identity. I'm suddenly of yeah. this religion. If yeah. I support this political campaign or cause, it, people will know me as someone who reported it, and that that's reputation. Mm-hmm. Control is, if I join this group, I have to deal with all these messy people that come with it. Um, and that's incredibly um, uh, messy and scary. It's chaotic. And um, it you have to leave the security of isolation And you have to go through the valley of chaos and uncertainty, and it will take a while before you get the deeper, more peaceful security and comfort of friendship and community. And um, that is the gift at the other end of the fear of association, which is the comfort of friends. When um, somehow making friends... I'll just say it sucks. <laughs> no, yeah. but having friends is great, <laughs> and um, joining communities kind of sucks. But being in a, in a community is great, and we just have to bucket up and leave our homes and go out and deal with the awkward, mm-hmm. um, the awkwardness, and um, have a lot of mercy during that valley of uncertainty. Hope people have mercy for mm-hmm. you, and you will reach the other side of the it. Sooner than you expect of the comfort and joy of community and friendship. Yes,
0: that's good. That's good. You know, we get inklings of that I think in Wendell Berry's novels, which are not deeply romantic pastoral visions of lost America. They're they're dense, rich recapturings of a certain kind of society. But there's there's all kinds of trauma and pain and suffering but it's in a a certain kind of a shared context that reminds me of what you're just saying so that at the end of it it's almost a kind of beatific vision but it was not because it was all beatific getting there you know
1: yes amen Uh, and uh barry plays a big role in the book and he's kind of i'd say he haunts the book in a good way So beautiful. beautiful. Um, amen to that. On on his novels, you know, no, and, and he's thing. honest about that. You know the yes the um, small town life isn't always uh, isn't always rosy. No. <laughs> you know, there are parts for of sure. it that are
0: hard, for sure. You know the other theme in the
1: book that I've come on to more recently,
0: um, maybe you have also, or maybe we hit it about the same time, is this sort of controversy or, or debate around the way notions of innovation. Have hollowed out the practices of maintenance and care. This, to me, is just a mind-boggling theme. It's like one of these things. Like, I, you know, somehow dimly I knew this was so, and now that someone has said it, I think, oh my God, this is this is central. You know, so f- feminist economists have been working on the economy of care for a long time. There's no news, you know, to them. And so now, you know, um, President Biden's talking about infrastructure, blah, blah, blah. You and I follow strong towns. Uh, Chuck Marone has some ideas about that. And Chuck is even um, featured in the book, The Innovation Delusion by Lee Vinsell and Andrew Russell. And you mentioned them also. And I think this is just a a vast territory that ties perfectly to the themes of your book. and, And thus, it is one of the themes of your book. Um, But it's something that I don't think um, in a kind of a more shallow cultural sense, we have begun to wrap our heads around, although the pandemic
1: is getting us there. This is um, this is one area where I'm very curatorial instead of kind of thinking I take no credit for this. This is and I mention it in the book. Yeah. The great essay on this is vinsel and russell's yep. essay in sure. in neon hail the maintainers which was you know top 10 essays i've read in the last decade you know yeah. it's really it's a real game changer game. yep and and there's so much depth to this idea which sure. is you know they 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 even, and I interviewed Vinsel for the book um, uh, directly beyond just what he's written. Um, And he actually said they decided to write the article after having a joke about Walter Isaacson's book, The Innovators. Oh, yes. Uh And it was like, they were like, oh, gosh, we should do a book called The Maintainers or something, you know, and and say and try to, like, give them the Hollywood treatment as well. And he said such an interesting thing. He said if you're really serious about technology, like this is what Chuck Marone's always telling people with strong towns, Mm -hmm. think about things as their full life cycle, you know, and think about things as the full system that goes with them. And I I say in the book, like every iPhone needs a communication network. Every shower head needs a water network. Every Tesla needs a highway network and all of these are interconnected. So that's across space, across time who fixes the iPhone, who trains the people that, you know, that fix the iPhone, who puts it to, you know, who runs all the kind of apps and software upgrades, who does all that work. And, um, and that's something that that turned me on to. And what I kind of brought this in on my book in is I talked more about human institutions, yeah. which are think of all the maintenance mm. and stewardship of human institutions and the example I gave in the books from my world of the law, I think about, talk about a practice. Okay. You know, I talked about basketball or brunch or whatever Um, the law, you need all the people that print all of the documents, all the databases that hold all the opinions, all the judges chambers, the literal architecture of all the law, the bailiff, the people who, you know, and we don't, we need to appreciate all of that and say that what those people are doing matters and their part, their commitment to that stewardship and stewarding that well is something that we should respect and celebrate. Yeah,
0: that's good. You know, you have a section of the book, which I was delighted to see on economics and the um, what's, what's the title of
1: something about options. It's called open options,
0: economics, money versus particular things. Wonderful. You know, it's, it's not in the least, technical, there's no reference to the Gini coefficient or NAFTA or none of that. It, it's all in very approachable, you know, kind of plain language. But I was thinking, because I don't think this has quite gotten through yet. The maintenance culture has not reached finance and investment. And what I mean by that, I want to get your thoughts on this. What I mean by that is we, we finance for growth, a certain kind of growth. We finance finance for certain kinds of industries. What we don't much care about are little localized enterprises. So thus we have two two economies. We have a national economy, which works at scale. And that's the one that, you know, the VCs are supposed to help you get to, the venture capital people. But if you're down, you know, on the local level with your dry cleaners and your middle-sized town, it's a battle. It's, It's a battle anymore to find the funding, to find the backing. Yeah. You know, to just the lifestyle business is what supports neighborhoods. And those are very, very difficult to do anymore.
1: I want to, there is this, I I bet all you have this, Elias, and all my listeners have, uh, all of our listeners have this as well, Hmm. which is there's some paper that you read at some point that was very affecting, but I've, I've lost track of it and I don't know what it is. So I'm going to, I'm going to cite to a paper. If anyone knows this out there, please write in. Right. Um, There's some paper I read that really affected me on this point, which was that (laughs) um, it was talking about like, I don't know if it was like 7-Eleven or it was convenience stores generally, and it was talking about that the real miracle of economic growth is not in the vanguard cutting-edge technology that MIT and Silicon Valley comes out with. Mm -hmm. It's in the tinkerers' application and entrepreneurs' application of that technology in practical purposes um, to serve local needs. So the reason they use convenience Mm -hmm. stores or 7-Eleven is like the technology that makes the automatic doors or the scanner or the shelving or the Slurpee machine or the way of doing scheduling, there was some moment where some MIT or Caltech person like had to come up with like the the invention of the grocery store scanner it's like yeah. total yeah. cutting edge rocket science stuff in the 70s or something mm-hmm. but the magic is not that that was invented. The magic really comes when someone said, hey, I could use that for automatic doors, or hey, we could use that to do this in this way. And that magic usually happens at like a local state technical college, or at, you know, at some entrepreneur industry event where someone figures out a way to, to localize the, the thing. And I just think There are, and they said we should, the magic of kind of American growth in the past and innovation is not that we just have these great vanguard entities and we have good ones, like I'm citing MIT a lot, it's that we have it's when we distributed the technology and we made sure that there was a wide distribution of tinkerers and, and, um, Mm. and localizers and appliers of things, the, the mayor that reads in the journal of the Vanguard idea and brings it to their town, the entrepreneur that sees at the trade show, there's some Vanguard technology and thinks, oh, I could use that for my grandfather clock business or whatever. Um, uh, The restaurants that decide, oh, let's start using the new way to do the menu or whatever and we in way invest too much in just the vanguard technology and not in the dissemination policy and i think Mm -hmm. that is something we definitely have to do the dissemination of technology but also the dissemination of capital to maintain these businesses the um uh the side of the local chamber of commerce that is not lobbying for a business-friendly policy but is rather just trying to create a a community of shared practice. Um, I think we need to double down on that. The yes. the people in the mayors' offices that are boosters for the regional industry, and figure out ways that they can kind of, you know, you know, I like that message in in Parks and Rec where. You know, this kind of ironic message of Parks and Rec that this little Indiana town can have the best park system in the world. And, and right. that that is what makes America, you know, that's when we do have greatness as this country is when people have these big dreams in small places. Yeah, that's good. That's good. I'm sounding like Bill Kaufman here, but...
0: uh, <laughs> <laughs> Bill, great guy. You know, um, I was thinking about your book when I was talking to one of my daughters, I'll leave her anonymous. She's about to graduate and um, she's uh, talented academically and, and uh, I thought might go into grad school. And she, with some hesitation informed me that she decided she would not be, or at least not right away. And I said, oh, okay, all right, well, why not? What are you gonna do, like a gap year? And she said, yes. And I realized what she was saying as she described this gap year was that she was saying, now that I have finished these four years, of the um, uh, education for attainment, right, as you call it. Yeah. I'm going to take a year and spend time doing all the things I never had time to do while I was at college. This was just so mind-blowing to me because, you know, I'm I'm so old that I went to college in order to have time to to (laughs) think. And she's telling me, no, 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 we don't do that anymore. You have to finish college and get off the treadmill. And then you can hope to read. You know, I thought this was just awful news,
1: you know what I mean? The single most fertile, this is an anecdote, but um, the single most fertile time, I'm 31 now, the single most intellectually fertile time in my entire life was 23 and 24. <laughs> and it was literally the time I read books, which was after graduating yeah, college. Yeah, this is- yeah. <laughs> and, um, and it's, there is something, and, you know, I talk about that in the book. I don't know if you had a specific question about that no, or.
0: No, just, but, but it was just so poignant or maybe more like painful to me to get your point about the education of, t- of achievement versus uh, the education for or advancement versus education for attachment. Say, say something about attachment. What do you mean by Yeah, attachment? this
1: is my one of my favorite chapters, and I, I'm yeah. glad I got to sneak it in and it made it through the chopping block, Good. which yeah. was, um, you know, my editor sometimes is like, you have first book-itis where you want to put all of the ideas <laughs> you would like, <laughs> no matter if they're thematically connected or not. But, <laughs> but this made it through, Good. which is, I can start this with two stories. One is Alfred North Whitehead, the old philosopher, writer, um, back in the day where you know the great public intellectuals wrote crisply and clearly um, in like with these wonderful um he's one of those he said the um the uh, like the goal of I, I'm butchering the quote but it's like the goal of uh education is that it should be religious oh, yes. and by religious I mean it evokes reverence and duty. Mm-hmm. Yep, and I just thought that was such a paradigm shift in thinking about education. So he says, and the best education out there is the one he says that evokes reverence and duty. And what is, and it, religious is the right word for you because religio, the original like root, is to bind, right. to connect you to something. Like ligaments is the same thing as religion, mm-hmm. it's something that connects one thing to another. And what are reverence, but. Be- and duty but two methods of binding you reverence is i'm magnetically attracted to this awe inspiring thing duty is i feel kind of you know morally connected that i must you know i'm implicated by this i must act in response to this and this is totally lost in when we think about education we talk about education as something that frees you from your ligaments, like liberatory education, which I think is important. I think this is Mm -hmm. both are important, not one's better than the other. You need education to say all those things you have all these attachments to, you should look at them with a critical eye. And that is wonderful. And that's like a very important part of education. And But I think we only talk about that. But there's another part of education that says, here are a set of ideas or causes or fields or crafts that might be worth having reverence and duty towards. Um, And then you think about on a very practical level, um, who are the teachers you love most? You know, some of them are the liberatory teachers that said like, I used to think this way. And then they told me this totally other way to think. Mm -hmm. But Others of them are the ones that said introduced you to nursing for the first time or introduced you to Sherlock Holmes for the first time. Or yeah. Yeah. you're one of my mentors, Elias, who introduced me to all these thinkers, you know, Father Mendy, you know, uh, Dor- Dorothy Day, I learned from kind of this community, you know. Um, uh, the first teacher that said, you know, go check out Monty Python, you might like it, it's from back in my day. And then you come back and you go, Mr. Sharf, Monty Python's amazing. <laughs> and, um, and that those are ones that are the religious teachers, yeah. the ones that evoked reverence. And I did goofy examples. But what about the one that said climate change is really important to work on? Or, you know, in my life, you know, Ralph Nader getting lighting a fire inside me for public interest law and and, and justice. Um, And that is what I mean by advancement versus attachment. Education for attachment is something that helps you make commitments. Whereas education for advancement is about filling you with a tool set that allows you to keep your options open for the sake of yourself and you know move up, advance, get deeper into the onion of power and um and prepare, 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 prepare until it's too late. There's nothing left to prepare to because you're on your deathbed. Yep.
0: <laughs> yep. That's great. That's great. Um, you know, one one other final thought, you I noticed did the audio book. You did your own
1: audiobook. Yes, yes.
0: What, what was that like? I'm just curious what it's like. D- no, yeah, this is audiobook.
1: this is my favorite anecdote from the whole book process because uh, it's it is a goofy thing. You literally sit in a booth, there's an engineer and then there's a director in your ear and you read the whole thing and then they tell you the pronunciations and soon you discover all the things that you've only read. And I learn it's not oh. Simone Weil you know, <laughs> <laughs> because the director in my ear corrects me, or um, and uh, um, and you have to read. You learn about how much your throat can handle of talking, you know. <laughs> exactly. And um, you learn about how to maintain enthusiasm for something when you're on hour five of a day of reading something. And the most painful thing about recording your own audiobook is. Um, it's so funny. You just locked the manuscript right before you record your own audiobook. So, you yeah. know, you're in this rush to lock the manuscript. You're like, okay, okay, it's the deadline. You're never happy. Okay, take it, print it, it's fine. But then they immediately make you read it out loud. Mm-hmm. And notice all of the sentences that could have been better, things oh, that were yeah. phrased bad, and it's like raking you over your own creation right. and seeing how how uh, imperfect you are, um, mm-hmm. which is a humbling experience.
0: No doubt, no doubt. Just one more revision is all it needs. Yes.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you almost want to record the audio book, then share all your edits, and right. Uh, right. you so, know, go from there. Wonderful. The book
0: is entitled "Dedicated: The Case for Commitment in an Age of Infinite." Browsing a wonderful effort. Um, I, I predict great things for it. Pete. What a pleasure!
1: Thank you so much, Elias. So glad to uh, be in the interviewee seat here. It was a joy and a, and a reminder of you know, I've uh, how interesting the questions and the angles that come from this community of Solidarity Hall oh, are great on well, uh, things coming across the transom. So, thank you, for appreciate being it. Here. All right, thank you. See you well.
0: Bye, you